I am Kelly Forden, and I'm thrilled to be here for the third season of Let's Deconstruct a Story. I'm also a bit giddy because the podcast is now being produced in collaboration with the Gross Point Public Library in Michigan. The GPPL has committed to purchasing 10 books by each of these authors to give, yeah, give, to their patrons. If you are a short story writer who has tried to make money in this game, then you know what a big deal that is. My hope is that other libraries will follow the GPPL's lead and be inspired to buy books by these talented short story writers. I'll be contacting many libraries this year to suggest it. Please feel free to do the same if you feel so inclined. Libraries need good books, and good books are written by writers who devote themselves to craft. A win-win in my estimation. I'm Kelly Forden, and I'm here today with Sarah Micah, and we are talking about her title story, Cities I've Never Lived In, from her collection, Cities I've Never Lived In. Nice to meet you, Sarah. Thank you for coming. Hey, Kelly. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about this story because I noted that the New York Times, you know, called it haunting, and some other reviewers called the whole collection haunting, and I, I felt the same way about it. The narrator stuck with me and I've been ruminating about it. So so I'm excited to hear more about the process. One thing I wanted to just go over quickly is the the whole collection. If if you wanted to just tell us a little bit about the entire collection and how this fits in, and then we'll just get right into the story after that. Right. So the collection cities I've never lived in, you know, I wrote this over probably a span of eight years. And I think the stories are put in there chronologically. And the early stories were just sort of stories I wrote, you know, but later on, they became stories that were a part of a collection that I saw that way. Um, So there's a little bit of a shift in the middle. And um, the title stories, cities I've never lived in, I definitely wrote once I had a sense of the collection of the voice of the narrator. And uh, the New York Times said, you know, the narrator is common to many of the 14th stories, but I was curious, did you see the narrator because it's, uh, you know, first person narrator as the same person throughout all the stories or, or most of the stories or a similar person? (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I don't think I did at first when I was writing the stories. Um, I think it happened accidentally because I think it's natural for me probably to write from a point of view of my own voice, um, which I think is different for other writers. So I think I just naturally kind of fall back on that. And so halfway through, it was probably accidental that it was a similar voice. But then in the second half, I I just started to use that voice and, and kind of play around with it more. And did you find that the narrator did you find a trajectory of the narrator throughout all of the stories? I know I'm going to get back to just this one story, but I was curious about in the collection, the the trajectory of the narrator for you. Right. You know, I'm working on another book now that has kind of the similar narrator and I think I'm doing it really differently than I did with the first book. I'm much more aware of it in the second one. 
Yeah, I think the trajectory is probably like the first half. It's sort of like coincidence that she ended up being similar. So I I wasn't really aware of how it would work in a larger sense than just the individual story. Um, And I didn't really think of her having a like a consciousness that would exist outside the story necessarily or connect to anything else. But then once I sort of became aware of it in the second half, there was a desire to kind of to build story by story into like a larger story that kind of connected it. Okay. Well, I'll get into this story in particular since um, we're supposed to be talking about this one, but I was just curious. I, um, one of the interesting things about like doing this podcast is that I get to ask questions that uh, you never get to ask the author. And I guess my first question would be about this story as a whole. If you had to, like summarize it or say, you know, what do you think this story was about? What do you think it's about since <laughs> you wrote it? Um, I think it's a, this, this story is a funny story to talk about because um, it's quite different than all the other ones in the collection. Um, I, I think it's about a trip I took cross country to visit soup kitchens that I actually took, which I don't normally write stories this way. Um, and the story is for the most part, everything that happened on the trip that I actually took. And so in a way, when I wrote this, it was more nonfiction. Now, sometimes I use my life in stories, you know, but it still feels like fiction. But this one, sort of, for the most part, was nonfiction. I didn't really know what I was writing. And then later I was like, oh, it, it, it fits in. It doesn't sound different. Like the, it doesn't, the voice doesn't sound that different or the way of telling the story doesn't that sound that different that it would stand out. If I put it in the collection, it just sort of worked. And I tend to take a long time to write and it takes me a long time to get pages. So I was keen to stick it in once I realized, you know, it would work and it would add whatever 10 pages to the collection. Mm -hmm. It's always a relief when um, I can add some more pages to something I'm working on. Yep. I totally understand that. Um, Okay. So in particular, why does the narrator find soup kitchens comforting? I thought that was an interesting moment. Yeah. And I think for the rest of the stories, talking about a story wouldn't necessarily mean talking about me because a lot of the stories in the collection are, you know, completely fictionary, uh, fiction or or a mix. But this this one, because it's different than the others, does talk, mean talking about me more and that I think I was quite interested in soup kitchens because I had vol- volunteered in them um, uh, for a few years and I found that I, I really liked them. I really liked uh, like a sense of communal eating. Um, and so when you work there, you also eat there. And communal eating without all like the, I don't know, like there's no like co-op vibe of how great, you know, we're doing by doing this sort of communal thing. It was just sort of like, here's food, people need food and we're all mm-hmm. going to sit down and eat the food. And that, I, that was appealing to me. So sort of like the getting to know people when you were sitting there and um, well, the communal aspect of it, especially since in the beginning of the story, the story starts with the line during the trip, the lover I had left behind in New York had stopped calling. And so that sets you up, the person up for who's reading the story up for the loss and sort of the idea of wandering and trying to figure out what to do next. So I could see where this narrator in particular, even if it is sort of you 
this narrator, you know, wants to see and talk to people. Is that what you were thinking? And, and see what's going on in the world outside of her own situation? Maybe, you know, I'm not the world's biggest talker and the narrator isn't necessarily either. Maybe more the food kitchens, uh, more um, than a desire to talk to people, I would probably say for food, like literally (laughs) and have food can, Mm -hmm. can be hard to acquire sometimes, but also more the like there's physical comforts in just a lot of people, people around people sitting. um, Mm -hmm. And in our regular lives, we have to talk a lot and communicate and have discussions. You know, I, I teach, I teach for a living and, and it's actually quite nice to be in a setting where you don't necessarily have to do that. Like people are hungry and they need to have food and sit down and people really in those settings, I don't make a lot of small talk. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So when, when you were traveling in particular, would you be working at the soup kitchen and then eating there as well? Or you would just visit them when you were traveling? When I was traveling, I was just visiting them and I, I, I had volunteered before at one in Provincetown for um, a little under a year. And then when I was living in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, I volunteered. And then when I, and then I traveled sort of shortly thereafter, Um, you know, and the one in Greenpoint, Brooklyn that I was volunteering at, I think she, I think it was run by a minister. I should know what religion it was. And I I don't. you know, it's one of those religions that accept everybody. Um, and I talked to her a little bit about it and she said, you know, it's not uncommon within the faith to go on this sort of mission where you leave with not much and you, the world sort of provides as you mm-hmm. travel without anything. And, Cause I was always a little uncomfortable with getting this free food. So in particular, I picked soup kitchens that weren't you can tell on the website, the ones that are sort of for everybody, just come, mm-hmm. we want to just come and sit with us. And versus the ones that are really trying to hit people who have absolutely nothing and, and a really destitute population. And I tried to leave, you know, that second for the people in desperate need and went to more like the ones that were just come, you know, anybody can come. Right. And was that, so did someone give you in particular the advice, like, or, I mean, did that give you the idea to go on the trip when she mentioned these, you know, trips or what mission trips or? I I think I was just talking about it at the soup kitchen and trying to get a sense of it, if it was an okay thing to do. And I talked to her a little bit about it because, you know, it's a little uncomfortable because I, I was poor at the time, but I, I, you know, I hadn't, I had enough food and enough money to pay rent and, and, and doing fine. I wasn't, you know. Right. So what about the the actual trip versus the trip in the story? Where did did it follow pretty exactly the trip that you took or did you leave out some of the cities that you visited? I probably left out a few though I wouldn't really it more or less followed what I did. You know, I only wrote about the part of the trip I felt I could write about. So there's you know parts that things that happen and parts of it um, that I didn't write about, you know, I, de- I developed a, a romance for real on the trip and it just didn't, it was too, too real to write about it. So that didn't make it in, but also something I don't think I felt equipped to write about then and probably wouldn't now 
it's for some reason I didn't really think about race when I decided to go on this trip because the two soup, soup kitchens that I had been volunteering served at, you know, primarily white population in Provincetown. It was it was typical for year-round workers in Provincetown just to go to the soup kitchen in the winter. And so it was just a lot of the people who lived in Provincetown and then there'd be a Portuguese population as well. And, and in Greenpoint, it was a lot of um, the poor um, older uh, Polish population. So I just didn't have, I didn't think race when I went on the trip. And, and now each soup kitchen, I would end up going into the poor part of each city. And you realize pretty quickly you were going into the black areas, which I didn't really realize that cities were structured in that way. It was very eye-opening for me, city after city, that I would just pick a soup kitchen, you know, online and uh, just head into clearly a black area and 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 uh, a lot of um, a large black population inside the soup kitchen. And I, I started to really see the segregation of our cities, which was eye-opening for me was something yeah. I really didn't know. And when you do 10 cities in a row, you really see it. And I I just didn't, I, I think I, I wrote a teeny bit as a little bit of a subtext, but I didn't, I couldn't really write about it. I didn't, I, didn't, I did notice that because I noticed two, two parts where you wrote about um, the ca- taxi cab driver who mentions mm-hmm. um, that he talked to some of the black drivers and I'm trying to pull that up here about how to handle crime and then there was a section in Detroit but you and you made a point of mentioning that it was the white children playing outside of these abandoned buildings but I was interested in that um, because I you know live in in the Detroit area and definitely notice how racism plays a, a role people are impoverished in certain sections of the city. And I feel like racism is still playing a huge role. It probably would have taken over the story if you'd gone down that route. I just didn't have enough knowledge. I still don't just to feel comfortable enough to, to write in. You have to feel, um, I guess I could have picked to write about my discomfort writing about it, but you have to feel quite comfortable in a certain world to, to not be hyper like conscious as you write it you know and I just didn't have the, a way to do it well another thing I noticed was um, because I live in um, Detroit I was noticing a lot about the taking of pictures and and um, the narrator is always wanting to take a picture but never knowing how it will be taken and that's a big thing that happens in Detroit especially when before it started to be revitalized people would come in and take pictures of abandoned buildings or the you know, it was kind of, um, I forgot what they called it. There is a phrase for it because somebody, I had never heard of it. And in a review of my book, somebody mentioned it. I'll, I'll think of it during the course of the interview because I, I hadn't heard of it. In general, how did people react to having their picture taken? Or did you feel, did you actually take a lot of pictures? Because in the story, she takes a few, but not that many. Yeah, and and again, the story in particular, different from the rest of the collection, is yes, <laughs> more about me. So I'm not a real 
photographer, I did have a desire to capture what I was seeing in some way. And I, I didn't find that people didn't want their pictures taken, but there was like, it created separation between me and the other person. They're like, oh yes, this is the moment when you'll want to take a picture of me, you know, because I, this person who lives here play in a certain role. And I, I was uncomfortable. I don't, I, I don't, I think I maybe took two pictures and that was about yeah I know it is um it's a weird thing to want to capture a moment but then to be seeing something so sad too you know that it, it's hard to to know how to handle that yeah and it wasn't like pictures to show people oh here's my you know here's no, no. for my trip but just to, for yourself because you're seeing it and once you walk away you'll that moment is gone I think it's natural to want to have it in some way Right. I know you had a uh, a moment here where it says, um, when I finally took a picture, it was of a man begging near Slow's barbecue, which I know really well. Yeah. And then he says, and then she, the narrator says, do you mind that people take your picture? He said that he didn't. People want a picture of the homeless. He said, then it was clear that he wanted me to move along. I mean, in some ways, I felt like this understated way of capturing how this narrator is only in this moment for um, you know, a little while. And yet the people in the story are in this moment forever, forever. This is their life. I, I felt like the way that you captured that was very moving without any editorializing, you know what I mean? On either side of it, just to, there was another part that you did it well, a couple times. So I had this feeling of fragility throughout the whole story. And I felt like Oh, she must have said fragile a lot, but you didn't <laughs> because I looked it up. You only said fragile twice and then fragility once, but I felt like that was, I felt like the narrator was very fragile emotionally and everything around was, you know, so fragile. And then you said another point, which I thought was really um, prescient or whatever. Um, I thought that those few people passing out food with their hands and little plastic gloves and their cross behind them should not be our major defense against the kind of poverty as a defense. It felt hopeful, frail, and largely hidden. And I wondered about the feeling in the story I got was that there was a very marginal group trying to take care of a huge problem, you know, like a very small group of people trying to take care of a big problem. And that was such a beautiful moment where she, not a beautiful, but I'm trying to think of, it just was so succinct. You know what I mean? That's exactly it. Right. Yes, it is. And it, again, something else I didn't really think about. And though the two places I had volunteered at were run by churches, um, I didn't really realize that was the case across the country that a lot of most of the soup kitchens were churches. And, you know, I think I wanted to put that line too, because um, churches can have a bad reputation sometimes or, you know, amongst the, you know, the academic liberal circles that I can be in. A lot of us don't go to churches, um, right? but nobody really talks about or recognizes them for this huge safety net they offer in our country and I kind of need to offer because no one else is offering it. Right. Yeah. That's what struck me as well. I'm not a church goer either, but then, well, without these churches, what would happen? And it also said something larger about how 
you know, government or whoever who's not providing. So someone has to step in. It just said something larger to me about the whole country and the way it operates as a whole. And I felt like that was how it accrued throughout the story, you know, city after city after city, the way that you wrote it was not like there was a trajectory for this narrator so much as it was these sadnesses were accumulating the more stops she was going, you know, going on where it almost had this effect of like, you can't ignore this. I'm just going to keep going to more cities and it's going to be more like, like this. And then, you know, and then it just sort of ends, <laughs> which is an interesting, you know, technique. And I don't know if you planned that or. Yeah. It's sort of like a terrible story structure. Um, but no, I I don't think I, I didn't think I was necessarily writing a story, you know, I was trying to, cause I knew we were going to do this story. I was trying to think about how this came into being often my stories come into being because I have a hope I'm writing a book you know I always think oh maybe I'm writing a whole book you know and then it (laughs) turns into like an eight-page story so with I sort of thought oh I'm going on this trip because I traveled for two or three months I forget um I'm going on this whole trip and I wrote a story before I left on the trip but that one's not in the collection and then I thought, oh, okay, so that's like 15 page story. And then I'll probably write like 100 pages on this trip. And then I'll come home and write a story. And that'll almost be a book where the whole trajectory will be the trip. Instead, I, I didn't do a lot of writing on the trip. But I I did this, this story is sort of like, kind of like the insights are the little moments that I wrote down. And I I knew I wasn't achieving what I had hoped as I was writing the little bits that I did. Did I have a computer? I probably didn't bring a computer. I might, I would have brought a computer. I don't remember if I had a computer with me on this trip or not. Um, I did. But the the takeaway is that I didn't, I was like, oh, I don't think I'm writing a story. That's disappointing. But these little vignettes are okay. I'll just keep doing them and figure it out later. Well, what year was the trip? Just curious. Um, I would say 10 years ago. Okay. Um, I, I'm just curious, like what was going on in the world at the time. But I, that at first, that's the way I read it. You know, I was like, oh, should we talk about this story? Because your, your other stories have more of an arc. Yeah. But at the same time, I think because mostly the people who will be listening to this would be other writers who are short story writers or who want to be short story writers. I think it's an interesting one because I had to read it a couple of times before I, I started to feel, wow, this is really accumulating in me. You know, like this is really, it, it was almost like a story where you're forced to look at something you don't want to look at for a long period of time. And then it gains more power over you. And then by the end, uh, I just had started having a lot of thoughts about how many things we don't look directly at. And I I thought it was really powerful. You have this other part in Chicago where, let's see, or, oh, when I took that picture in Detroit of the homeless man, I could have given him the leftovers I was carrying, but I found I wanted them. More than a dollar would would be giving money I felt I needed. Of course, none of this would add up or matter, except that I didn't give people something that wasn't easy for me to give. I paid for my tacos and gave the man the change. Bless you, he said. And I thought, to me, that really felt like a larger moment, a societal moment where that's 
a problem in my opinion <laughs> in the world with people is that we don't give more than we want to give. Like you give what doesn't hurt you. So it depends on, so how can, how can people who are in need depend on people who aren't going to give anything that hurts them? You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Um, though in that section, I, I was mostly, I think just realizing it in myself and Sure. I know. Yeah. yeah. I, know it's, I know it was specific to the character, but I thought yeah. this is so true of everybody. It's so yeah. true. Not everybody, but most people. Right. It's hard for me to, after seeing it in oneself to right. include others in it. Um, but it's an interesting quality to see in oneself and, you know, make you know, it gets one thinking, okay, why do I have this? You know, I, I hold to things tightly. Why, you know, where does that come from? It's kind of an interesting, it's uncomfortable. So that's always interesting to write about. Right. It felt so honest and it did feel uncomfortable, but I also, I felt it in that I felt that way before, you know, like you give, you know, if you're at the cash register and someone says, do you want to round up to give to children's hospital or whatever? I'll be like, okay, sure. But I think if it's a large amount of money, there's another kind of equation that goes on in, in your head. How long will I be feeling the effect of giving this much? And, and so it's, I thought it was a good thing to contemplate anyway. And I think it's a good thing to think about in terms, for me as a reader, to think about in myself. Yes, me too. And to go on a trip like this perhaps a better person would then go on to do good afterwards or, or want to give more. Cause I, I saw, you know, so much poverty and I didn't have a lot, but I, I wasn't uncomfortable, but nothing came of it in that regard. You know, I, I gave not much on the trip and, you know, and, and this, I'm sort of, I'm sort of interested in all the gray murky areas, like, um, People who don't have experience with soup kitchens, if they'll hear someone maybe didn't want the food that was given out that day, you know, because I also, the soup kitchen I worked at at Greenpoint, we also gave the people would eat, but also take a bag away, you know, or or they got to pick their things. And sometimes they didn't want the things. It wasn't to their liking that food or they wanted a different food. And, the, you know, poor people are no different than any of us that sometimes don't like the food and don't want to eat it or, or try to get their hands on something different that is at the soup kitchen. And, and, you know, and, and, and then the idea of giving poor people money because they can then get what they want. And I think people think, Oh, they'll get alcohol or they'll get this or that if, if they get money. So I, I was sort of very interested in, in those ideas. And I do remain interested when I um, hear the news or different pilot programs. Mm-hmm. I, I I like to think about them. Yeah, well, people have a lot of assumptions and probably a lot of them are, are wrong. But people yeah. don't generally get close enough to the problem. They don't look directly at it unless they have to or they're forced to, which I think makes the problem larger. You say here in, so you the narrator goes to an exhibit on hunger at a county art museum in a Kansas town. And she thinks that the artist you know, it was too compassionate and that, that it wasn't as effective as art. And then um, her mother is there and she says, can something be too compassionate? And she says, artists take images and stories from people without telling them and artists are doing it for their own ends or for the ends of art. 
even if they have morals or set limits, they're still taking from people. Their interest in another's life is often for themselves. Yes, I I do feel that's true. And I did go to that exhibit and I do believe that was my my feelings about it afterwards. Um, it was more of a, the, the man who did the exhibit was more on a social mission um, mm-hmm. than, than creating art. Um, and, and that can be limiting, I feel. So he was more interested in what, getting their stories or how, um, how did it manifest itself exactly? I think he wanted to change, you know, the food scarcity problem. The um, I think he wanted to create effect, create change in our society and make people see people are hungry or don't get enough food and hopefully create change by doing that. And that was a primary goal when didn't feel like... Um, there wasn't anything sort of spontaneous and unknowing in what he was doing in it. So it's an interesting question, like for artists, I I wonder about, um, you know, like this narrator in particular, she says here, the question started to become what was effective art about the hungry of the homeless or the hungry or the homeless. And there wasn't an answer I took from everyone on the trip. I'm wondering, what do you think an artist's, Not that artist's mission is, uh, I mean, it made artists sound like so selfish. And in a way it's true, but I also was thinking, is an artist trying to figure out why the world is the way it is? Not necessarily wanting to change it, but to understand it. I'm not sure. What do you, what is your thought on that? Yeah, if there is a saving grace of what artists do, it's, you know, people read, read the story or, or they read someone's book and feel a sense of connection and, and uh, um, some of their loneliness goes away. And so there's, there's good in that. Um, but it, there is, there is a real selfishness inherent in it, which is un- uncomfortable for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Especially when you tell, like in other stories, if, you know, it's loosely based on real life, then you create characters within the story. Have you had the experience of having people read it and be like, wait, I was with you in that city. Is that me? Or, you know, has any- yeah. I'm careful. I'm super careful with that. Like I use myself really broadly. I'm comfortable with that. And like my mom is in this story, you know, she's the mom in the story, but um, if you, you read the story that much, yeah. how much it's included, she does not, nothing is revealed about the mom. And there is a mom in this book where there's more vulnerable moments. And that is not, that is fictional, you know, that is made up. Cause I, I couldn't, there would be too much discomfort from taking real emotional experiences from my parents or from loved ones. Like there's an ex-husband in this book and I emotionally was dealing with a divorce. And a lot of those feelings are true for what I was going through, but the ex-husband in the book is really different than my ex-husband and the scenes are fictional. So I think I, I think I take everything that I'm comfortable taking. And then it also is more freeing for me, I think, to fictionalize those characters. I think I'd feel quite limited if I really was using my ex-husband. Um, as a yeah. I was um, reading something by, um, well, Jeffrey Eugenides, when he wrote um, one of his books set in Detroit, um, oh, well, Middlesex, and he was saying how coming up with the main character was, you know, took all of his imagination. So he set the story in places he was familiar with, you know, yeah. among people that he was familiar with. And I've, I've done that in stories too, like, you know, 
set the story in a trip and um but then have all the characters different in, yeah. you know who are actually there so is that something you do like you use the settings that you've been in and then fashion the story <laughs> in those settings or because some people are better at you know coming up with characters some people are better at coming up with settings I would rather just use a setting I've seen so I don't yeah. have to think too much so I'm curious yeah I think it changes I think it's just it probably you know with most writers what feels the most creative or most like something um, dark unknowing water you want to jump into can sometimes involve using my memories or like the um cities I've never lived in for instance is set in Maine um and now um originally from Cape Cod. So I was quite used to like, and it's coastal Maine, I'm quite used to like coastal communities, but I, I didn't feel that creative writing about Cape Cod. It's like a small town I grew up in. It felt kind of limiting, but Maine felt wilder and I'd visited so I could just write it, but it also felt like I could make a lot and felt unknown and dark. It's something I could just go into and I didn't feel that way with Cape Cod. That makes sense. Um, okay, there's one section I wanted to talk about. I was. Um, it says here, I was thinking of King's Bookstore in Detroit, how when I walked in, the woman behind the register had said, oh, you've been here before. And that was something that someone else mentioned about your stories, how like there are doppelgangers or there's someone that, you know, looks like another person. What is, what, what do you think? Uh, did you know you were doing that? Or is that something you think about often? Well, I actually at RISD where I teach um, the freshman um, lit course, you can, each teacher can come up with their own theme. And I, I just started to teach doppelgangers. So every, every semester I do a course on doppelgangers. I'm always changing the readings because it's fun to be able to read it all. Um, but, uh, you know, one question is why, why doppelgangers? Why are we interested in this? And you'd think after teaching it for five years, that I'd be further along on why I'm interested in doppelgangers. And I I don't quite know, but I do, I do get mistaken often for another person. I, I think I have an appearance that other people have. Um, So it's kind of, it creates this interesting sensation of having recognizable to people that you don't know, or um, having been to places you haven't been. Um, And so I think I played with it in that, in that story um and also the authors who uh have the same name as a famous author like i'm looking for dennis johnson trying to find the old edition of jesus son i found 10 other johnsons many of them women it was the same with walzer it was as if the famous authors didn't exist and there were only the unknown versions and that was kind of a wild moment too yeah and i that's what I, I always teach um, Freud's The Uncanny when I teach the the, the doubles class, because there, there isn't something we can intellectually necessarily understand about why we're attracted to, to doubles of things. And it was more just an uncanny sense that we moved towards. And so I couldn't have gone any further plot wise. I don't find doubles to be helpful plot wise for me because I can't there's not really an explanation. It just sort of gives us a sense of the uncanny and then you move on. It's about as far as I've gotten with it. Um, But it's strange to us. I don't really know why it's strange to look for one writer and find one very similar, but not quite that writer. And, you know, those old used bookshelves, but you feel a moment of strangeness. 
Yeah. Or like an, you know, alternate life that yeah. you, that this other person who's exactly like you is living. And what are some of the texts that you teach about doppelgangers? My favorite is Dostoevsky's The Double. I love it. It's so insane. It's just a crazy book. (laughs) I finally, I couldn't teach it this year. I had taught it for four years, which means reading um, both semesters. So I had read it like seven or eight times. And I was like, I, you know, because it's, it's taxing. Dostoevsky's, he has this character that's melting down. That's some version of him, you know, and he is taxing with it and it's crazy and great, but also is tiring for the reader. Um, But that's, that's my favorite. I'm trying to think. I, I, I always teach um, um, the Sandman, which mm-hmm. you know, I, I do doubles like literally the classics, like the Secret Share of Conrad and um, and Poe's William Wilson. But then also try to find more contemporary ones that play on it. I became interested in sort of like if we can double our consciousnesses through robot or technology, are we creating doubles? And students love that, you know. So oh yeah. I, I like showing movies for that because there's some great ones like the movie, the old Russian film Solaris. As students are really interested. They're not quite as interested in the classic doppelganger stories as they are in like technology and how it doubles us and what that means for our future. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Okay, well, I didn't mean to get off track of the story because I know we're almost out of time. But um, so at the end... She stops going to soup kitchens. Um, she stays in Memphis. Uh, she goes through um, Louisville, Cincinnati, Columbus, and Pittsburgh. So it's starting to go by faster. And it feels as if she's getting to the end of this trajectory. Why does she stop going to soup kitchens? You know, when I was looking back on the st- story this morning, I think I stopped writing uh-huh. after a while. I think I was, because the experiences felt really new. And then I think I stopped writing about them. So like there's a section, most of the story is kind of being told as it's happening, but then there's a section where it becomes like retrospective. She's sort of looking back on the end of the trip. Cause I do think I actually stopped writing and then was like, man, I messed up. Now the tone's going to really change because I have to look back and try to remember the end of the trip. A real exhaustion had hit and sort of a lack of understanding what I was doing anymore, for sure, by the time I got to Memphis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did spend a fair bit at this place. I found you could go and eat cheaply. And I think I think I say like beer was cheap at a certain time of day. Yeah. <laughs> when you reach that point, I remember I, you know, after graduating college, I traveled in Europe for a bunch of months. And when you reach a point, you're like, oh, the wine is, the cheap wine at this restaurant is is quite good. We should stay here for a few extra days. (laughs) Maybe it's time that the trip has sort of lost its sense of itself. Yeah. Yeah, you get the, I mean, so that's what I was going to ask too, if you had to, because we don't know in the story, but I mean, she says a couple of times, like I was losing the sense of why I was doing this. And, and, and she starts talking to her lover again. And then what do you feel like she discovers, if anything, about herself on this trip? Um, I don't think a lot. Mm-hmm. I think on the other stories that come after it, she does. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think probably like the loneliness was larger than, than she might have guessed at when she started the trip, you know, which happens, I think, for most of us with long trips. There's so much to see at the beginning and that were of movement. And then at the end, to kind of, uh, yeah, you, you realize you're alone. Yeah. And you have to go back and you don't know what's there when you go back. Mm-hmm. Usually if you've left, there's less there than you would want there to be. The last line really intrigued me on Sunday. I even went to church knowing it could be an answer to the loneliness, but that you had to believe in order for that to be the case, which is so true, right? Um, yes. Having been a like churchgoer earlier in life and then not, that's that communal, that it was really great to have something that you were like, oh, this is the answer, you know, <laughs> this is, and then, Yeah. And I think seeing those kind faces of the people working at the soup kitchens who are part of that particular church um, and that, that they had a sense of place, you know, mm-hmm. that, they, that they they did. But you had to really believe in what you were doing to, to do that work. Um, and it wasn't necessarily open to you if you didn't have that same belief. Right. Yeah. Which which felt it is sad uh, because that's just an avenue that's not open to some people. Yeah. So when you sent this out, I'm just thinking about other writers, you know, we're always told like has to have a beginning, middle and end. And I feel like it was so effective the way it accumulated, but it doesn't really have a traditional story arc. Did you, was it picked up right away or did it take a while? I'm just curious. Do you remember? I, I had a friend who, um, Alison Devers, who was working at the time, uh, getting the fiction for long reads. Um, and she was like, I want some to publish something of yours for long reads, you know, and I, this has just happened to be what I have. So mm-hmm. I told my agent, oh, let's see if she wants it, but I'm not sure she's going to want it. It's just, this is the story that I've just written. And I kind of felt like she would be disappointed because it's not a real story, but she ran it and it's, it's held together as a story. I, pe- people talk about it maybe because it is the title story. So it's something to look at for that reason, but I'm not sure it's, I sort of thought it would disappear into the collection. And I sort of thought she would be disappointed and ask, Oh, maybe there might be something else, but they, they ran it and it's, it's done. Okay. Um, Yeah. And I feel like it's, as I said, it's really haunting and, and really stays with you. And that's the curious question for me is like, it's not what you're told to do in your MFA program and yet it has so much power. So I thought it was a really good one to talk about. I am curious. So you chose that as the title story in the collection. So why did you think of that as the title? I actually had, I had already titled something with this title. Um, A a series of like, kind of like prose poems had this um, title and that didn't make it into the collection, but there was a sense it was quite a good title. I'm not the world's best titler. My editor, Bridget Hughes, really liked the title. And I do think the title quite helped me um, help market the book a little better than I would have been able to if left on my own. So we, we just, this had a different title and we just clunked the better title on and let it that let it be the title of the collection. Yeah, well, it feels like a great title because she's like in the middle of this uh transient period in her life throughout many of the stories and it just felt like it captures that feeling of you know cities I've never lived in you know (laughs) 
Okay. And did I miss anything? Is there anything about the story that you wanted to talk about that I didn't hit on? That's the last question I always like to ask in case I miss something pivotal. I don't think so. You're, you ask such lovely questions and I, um, I appreciate, I appreciate a close reading of the work. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you for being on. And um, it was great talking to you about the story. I loved it. Okay. Um, yeah. Thanks. Okay. Thanks so much. And thanks for your work with short stories. It's wonderful. I love short stories. I'm glad you're doing it.